This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem in Victoria and the fascinating people and stories that make it tick. Today's guest is Sean Braybrook. Sean was born on Wurundjeri land and has strong connections along his maternal grandfather's line, the Kukuyalanji of North Queensland. Sean is also the managing director of Wagunganalu Learning Place, which provides Koori men on a community corrections order the opportunity to learn new skills, reconnect or further strengthen their culture, and participate in programs that address their offending behaviour. When Sean was growing up, he and his family were often the only Kuris in their suburb, school or workplace, and racism was ever-present. But Sean's mother Wanda was a force to be reckoned with, instilling in her children a strong sense of pride in their culture and heritage. Yeah, mum, mum, mum's a great lady, and probably, probably this sums it up as well. Is when me and my sister we, were young and we were going to school and that sort of thing. Um, my sister always tells this story how she would always see mum hiding behind trees, looking at us as we go off to school. She'd wonder why, and we'd be out in the playground, and mum would be looking at us from from behind trees and that. So she was always looking out for us, mum. Sean, we'll start with congratulations. You became a father for the fourth time a week ago today, almost to the hour, I understand. It's a wonderful thing. We all love and celebrate the birth of new babies, so congratulations to you and to your partner, Marinda. Yep. Maybe more so to her. The fourth child is a boy, Jarrah. Yep, that's him, Jarrah. How, Jarrah. How's he travelling? He's, he's doing really well, and I've got to say, he's Women are absolutely amazing, aren't they? For the birth of childs and everything they go through, just amazing. How is Marinda after having her fourth child? Yeah, she's she's doing really well. Um, the probably the the hard thing is getting her to slow down a little bit, take a step back, and have a bit of a rest. She's she's home from hospital quite obviously, and Jarrah's home and, and doing really well, and and she's getting back into the groove of everything in the swing. So yeah, she's doing really well. It's mm. a it's a having four young children. That is a real job. Yeah. So, Sean, you were born in Williamstown, grew up in Melton in the late 60s and the 70s. At that time, Melton was not the busy, bustling, growing suburb it is now. It was more like a, a little country town on the edge of Melbourne. Your family was the only Koori family in the area. What was it like growing up and going to school in that environment? Yeah, Melton was a... Like we said, it was a, it was a small place. There was only eight thousand people there when, when we grew up. It had its ups and downs. It was it was really good. It was good to grow up in that small community, especially surrounded by family and, that, and lots of things to do with as kids and that as well. Lots of park area and paddocks and all that sort of stuff that we used to muck around in and that. Um, being the only Curry family there was a little bit tough as well, you know, especially going through school and and um, yeah, a bit of racism and, and things like that. Yeah, hmm. and so. I mean, I guess it's sort of a sink or swim situation. Either you learn to cope and you maybe grow a bit of a, a tougher outer skin or... Yeah, it sort of it probably come more apparent to me later on in life. When you go through school and you face some of them in the playgrounds and things like that, being a, a young curry kid, and, you know, you get teased and you get taunted and throughout school and that. But really, as you grow up and you start to know, and, and some of the name-calling in schools and that sort of thing, you really 
nail it as being racism because of the fact that, you know, how do these kids know these things? How'd they know how to call me abo? How'd they know how to call me boom? You know, as you grow up and get a bit older, you, you realise that it was a real racist sort of thing. It wasn't just kids playing in the playground, just stirring or just picking on someone, you know. There was a real racial overtaunt yeah. to it, yeah. From there you went to the TAFE at Melton. You uh, really enjoyed that because you were able to work with your hands, something which you were good at doing. And then in year 10, you left school, you were 16 at the time, to start a plumbing apprenticeship in Footscray. Yeah, it was, it was really good. It was, the tech school was a great place. You know, you learn a lot through trades, but really, really felt that real connection, being able to use your hands, you know. As Aboriginal people, we see things, we fix things, and using the hands was, was something really good for me and really enjoyed that. That plumbing apprenticeship was an Aboriginal apprentice program through DEET at the time, and um, they took young Aboriginal kids and gave them apprenticeships and helped them through that apprenticeship. So I was lucky enough to win the plumbing one and ended up at the ammunition factory in Footscray, which is a, a really, really great job for me through that time. Sean, even though plumbing was a great opportunity and you loved it because it was working with your hands and something you were good at, it wasn't all plain sailing. It had its difficulties as well. How did things work out in that apprenticeship for you? It was a fantastic opportunity, but it was it did have its challenges. And there was over 119 apprentices or something like that. And um, most of them were fitter and turners, some painters, some carpenters. And there was one little curry kid that was an apprentice plumber at the time in there. So it, it did have its challenges. And probably um, to sum it up a little bit, the first day I actually worked there, I got dropped off. Mum, mum dropped me off at the front gates <laughs> and I went into work. And the foreman took me up and, and took me into the room where I'd be working out the back through the painter's shop and the carpenter's shop and the plumbing shop out the back. And um, here the, the men were standing in there, circled around, having a chat. When I walked in, I felt as if there was something being said about me, like being talked about. And then the, the tradesman introduced me. He said, oh, here, here's, here's our newest apprentice. He'll be really good on the, on the practical stuff, but not so good on the theory stuff. And that was my introduction to the world of plumbing. So I really had a, a really misfeeling about it. Mm. And the men, they were all right. But always remember going home from work that day and sort of having a chat to mum about whether or not it was the right place for me. Then later on, a couple of weeks later down the track, um, one of the tradesmen actually turned to me and said to me, oh, Sean, remember when you first walked into the ammunition factory and we were having that meeting? I said, yeah. He goes, well, we were having a meeting saying how we didn't want a little Aboriginal kid working for us. He goes, but you're not a bad kid, you're all right, aren't you? you? You do all right, don't you? So we really really grew up with it, with a thick skin, but definitely through that whole time, mum was a really force and we'd shared lots of that stuff with mum. And she does come across a remarkable person, your mother, in her wisdom and her depth of knowledge and her view of the Australian community as it was at that time and being able to see beyond it and being able to see what was important for her children um, yeah, she strikes me as a remarkable person. So you worked as a plumber until your mid-twenties, mm. looking for a change, and here she comes up again, your mum. Mm. She was working for Vascal at the time, the Victorian Aboriginal Community Services Limited, and she saw a job at the Burt Williams Centre in Thornbury as a youth worker. And this brought you in touch with the criminal justice system for the first time, and you felt like it would be something worth trying. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
once again, it was was mum, mum again. I was tracking along. I'd already finished my plumbing apprenticeship, and then mum presented me with this other opportunity. Heard of this other job, and at the time, I was a little bit sick of plumbing, crawling under houses and doing all the plumbing stuff that you do. So I um, ended up taking the job on in the Aboriginal Youth Support Unit as a, as a youth worker, which was a fantastic job. I couldn't believe that they paid you for it, being a youth worker. <laughs> you know, we were setting up football programs and me and my brother even founded a, a crew triathlon squad through this whole time. But the thing I really took away from that job and the, the things that I really love about it was how you, um, my life experiences as a young fellow growing up, sharing them with our younger generation and the younger kids that were coming through at that time and connecting with them and understanding them struggles and that, that was a real rewarding part of the job. Any particular people who, uh, or young men maybe, I guess more than women, stick in your mind? Great stories, lots of great success stories and, and fellas that we worked with and some sad ones as well, as for, well through that time. But um, these three brothers, they were fantastic young men and um, they were only really young at the time. One was um, 12 and the other one was 11 and the other one was about eight. We actually come in contact with them through, it was actually DHS at the time that put the Aboriginal Youth Support Unit onto them and asked us if we could locate these these young men, um, the three boys. Their mum had been in jail. They went into foster home a little bit backwards and forwards. Then when their mum had come out of jail, they um, reconnected with their mother and was was living with their mother and some really terrible things were happening with the mother's boyfriend. The mother actually got put back into custody. We actually went around their house one day and um, all the house was boarded up, locked, keys locked, changed and all that sort of stuff. And the next day I went back there early in the morning. Here's the young boys. They were climbing in and out of the back window going home of a night time. We ended up getting them into our Aboriginal hostel at the time and looking after them and formed some really great friendships with them young men and helped them through that really difficult time in their life where they really needed that structure and guidance from a family and and strong figures in their life. This wasn't just a a short-term thing. This was over many years that I even had the young boys come out and stay at my house on weekends and and let them join in my life a little bit as well. So, Sean, after being a youth worker with the Burt Williams Centre in Thornbury, your next role is as an Aboriginal liaison officer at Port Phillip Prison. How did that come about? So Port Phillip had a youth youth unit within there and I'd visited that a number of times and gone in and seen the fellas and, and did different things like that. So I knew about the, the prison situation as well. Then at the time, Phil Egan had had the, the prison, being a private prison, had contacted him, asked him to look at running an Indigenous program with inside. How do they get Indigenous workers working in the prison? The prison made contact with me and asked me if I'd come in and work inside a prison. At the time, I said no. <laughs> I said, no, I don't think I want to work in a maximum security prison. It wasn't sort of high on the agenda. But through Phil's, Phil's influence and the prison's influence as well, they got me to come into the prison. So we went into the Koori, um Education Unit and they invited up all the inmates at the time, all the Aboriginal inmates. Quite obviously, I knew a lot of them growing up in the community, knowing the community, working as a youth worker, knowing families and all that sort of stuff. So we sat down at the time. We had a really honest chat with all the fellas inside the prison. And I was thought to myself, well, maybe there is something I can do. Maybe I can help in this area. So that started my journey off in Port Phillip Prison. I went on and worked at Port Phillip Prison for the next five years as the Aboriginal liaison work with inside the prison. And uh, you had the idea to broadcast 
community radio program? Yeah, that was a fantastic idea. It was in the first year that I'd worked in the prison as well. Port Phillip Prison, being a private prison, we're really open to the concept of Aboriginal programs and what we could do. So we implemented a lot of cultural stuff within the prison at the time. The big NAIDOC celebration that still runs now, it's coming up to its 20th year now at Port Phillip Prison that they still run. A t-shirt competition that the fellas all design a painting, then they get to pick it and it goes on their prison t-shirt. Then we had this idea I had this idea about broadcasting live from inside a prison. In the prison situation, they're the forgotten people. People that we lock up are the forgotten people. So my theory was, let's bring the outside in. Let's try and get services to come in. Let's try and get people to come in to help support people so when they transition out, the gap's not as big. And the radio station took it to the next level. So Kelvin Anderson... He was the director at the time in in the prison. So um, I went in there and and like I said, I've been in the job about six months and I um, walked into the director's office and said, oh, how you going, Calvin? I've got an idea for you. And he goes, what's that, Sean? And I said, any chance of bringing a a radio station live and broadcast from inside the prison? And I thought he was going to kick me out of the office and say, no, it's a silly idea, move on. But he really liked the idea, really liked the concept and really challenged me to take it further and to to find out a lot more. So with close work with some of the prison staff in there at the time, some of the programs people, and also 3CR and the community radio station and Kutcher Edwards, we actually got the the radio in there and got it up and broadcasting from inside the maximum security prison. Now it broadcasts across the whole prison system through NADOC. It's in its 18th year and it's just grown from that little idea into this, this big one now. Sean, who was Kutcher Edwards? Kutcher Edwards is a oh, is an icon within the Aboriginal community. He's a singer, songwriter, activist, everything, all-round all great broke, legend, and been involved in all community radio stations and all that for a long time. And can guys in prison communicate with their family outside through the program? They have interviews on the prison, so that they would sit here like we're doing now, talking talking over the microphone. Um, Kutcher will interview them and um, have discussions about prison life, have discussions about family, send cheerios to family members. Really important for Aboriginal people to have, maintain that connection to their community and to their family. And this, the prison broadcast is 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 one of the best things that enables them to do that, gives them that sense of worth and that they're not forgotten and gives them that will to go on. And yet even with that wonderful program and that really engaging human thing that you started and still run, you've said that Port Phillip Prison was the toughest job you've had. Yeah. Why was that? Here I was, an Aboriginal man, really strong in his identity, strong in his culture and strong within the Aboriginal community. A lot of people knew me at the time and here I was working in a maximum security prison that had this big security arm. You you talk about a lot of the issues and problems with Aboriginal people and, and here's this system that was always seen to do that. So for me, as an Aboriginal man working inside that system, being able to, to navigate up that middle path, community on one side, and the big infrastructure of a, a big correctional system on the other side. Hmm. Because you wouldn't, as an Aboriginal man, you couldn't be effective with the Aboriginal men in prison if you're identified as a part of the system, the big correctional system. Yeah. You had to be identified as one of them or helping them 
navigate their way through that system. Yeah, exactly right. Now, there are lots of challenges that we see now for Aboriginal people working across the system and that as well. And something that I'm really passionate about is supporting the Aboriginal people within the work doing the job. And my time across the prison, some of the really big changes, the NAIDOC events and showcasing culture with inside the prison really started to change attitudes at the time around Aboriginal people and, and getting them to understand us as well really, I believe, made a difference at the time I worked through the prison system. So from Port Phillip, you go on to Corrections Victoria in your life in the law. Yeah. And you worked there for three years as, the, as a program manager or programs manager. Was this exclusively with Koori people as well? Yep, so I was employed, it was called the Indigenous Servicing Policy Unit at the time. So I was employed within there as a, as a programs manager across that. Virtually my job was to implement the things that we were doing at Port Phillip Prison across the, across the main prison and really support some of the Aboriginal workers with inside the prisons as well that we were starting to work. There was a whole lot of new prisons coming on at the time. So um, we had the, the Raven Hall that was built, the new Raven Hall Correctional Facility and that. So there was a real induction of new officers coming on at the time. So we developed a um, cultural awareness package that was delivered to all correctional staff across the correctional system. And me and a, me and a fellow by the name of Adrian Scalfort, we, would, we implemented that program and we would deliver it to, to new officers coming on and really give them a good cultural understanding of Aboriginal people that are going to come before them with inside the prison system. What did the package contain? What was it you taught them which did educate them? So there's a couple of classic things. Yes, we took people on a, on a journey through history and we looked at history. Probably one of the key things through history is the 1967 referendum. You know, Aboriginal people prior to that were classed as fauna and fauna and it wasn't until that that Aboriginal people were counted in the census and classed as citizens. Yeah, exactly, and we're not citizens of Australia. Yeah, that's right. Look, lots of things that we started off with was to make sure that if you're working for the Department of Justice, to understand what the Department of Justice expects you to do within that for Aboriginal people. And I'll share this story with you. One time, uh, prison staff, I, I got a phone call up and the prison staff said, oh, Sean, um, you need to come up here. Um, we've got a lady that's trying to come into prison. She reckons she's this fellow's mother. So I said, oh, yeah, well, who is it? And I said, yeah, well, it is his mother. And um, the prison staff said, well, no, it can't be Sean because we just took this fellow to the funeral last week of his mother. No one knew what was going on straight away. But to be able to explain our Aboriginal family structure and how Aboriginal families are built up of more than one mother and more than one father, social mothers and, and social fathers, and to explain that across the prison system had a really profound effect. Now across the system, we look at that the cultural connection and if that cultural connection is proven, then the people will go to the funerals as well, to family members. So they're the sorts of things that we, we looked at. The staff took a real lot away from it as well. It's really great to be able to share that. And these are people that hadn't thought about Aboriginal people at all a lot. I, I really believe it makes a big impact across the system. And we also wanted to tick off on a lot of the myths around about Aboriginal people, how we all get four-wheel drives and all that sort of stuff. I'm still waiting for mine, so <laughs> if it's out there, it's out there. You'll need one with four kids. Yeah. As I understand it, when you started at Corrections Victoria, there were 
seven Koori people within Corrections Victoria. Now they're over 200. That's correct? Yeah, yeah. And therefore there's, a, am assuming, a far greater understanding of Koori cultural issues yep. and far greater respect for both Koori staff and also Koori inmates in the system? Yep. I... I believe so. I believe that we're heading in the right direction. I think we've still got a little way to go to, for the system to fully understand and embrace Koori culture and Koori understanding that, but I believe that the steps are being made and, and in the right direction. Back then when I, when I was employed, there was seven of us across the justice system and now there is over 200. We've got traineeships as well and we're really starting to see the, the fruits of that and all that can be related back to the Victorian Aboriginal Justice Agreement. And that's where a lot of this has been born from and, and grows from it as well. Fantastic document, encourage people to get out and read it. It's in phase four now. We're up to our phase four of the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. But back at the time, it's, um, it highlights the Royal Commission, the recommendations from the Royal Commission. and it Of the deaths in custody. That deaths Royal in custody, yes. yeah. And it picks up on the recommendations, and this is Victoria. Victoria's response to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and has created real lots of great opportunities for Aboriginal people working across, well, working within government and working across the correctional system as well. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. So, Sean, you've had a very rich career in the law in, in a phase of, well, really, our criminal justice system with Corrections Victoria, Port Phillip Prison, Bert Williams Centre, and now you move on to the Wagunga Nalu Learning Place in Gippsland the general manager of that. You live on the property with your family. It's been going now for about 11 years. What is it and how did it come about? Yeah, it's a fantastic project and that's not because I'm, because I'm the manager as well, I suppose. <laughs> um, the way that Wagunga Nalu come about is actually from the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. So we're a key initiative from the Victorian Aboriginal Justice Agreement. One of the things that we looked at really early on in is we've got to stop Aboriginal people from going into the prison system and that'll stop all the impacts of incarceration and everything else that goes on in that. So Wagunganalu was formed and was formed as a diversion program. In 2006, I was appointed as one of the co-managers on that and our job was to look at the program development, what we're going to run, how we're going to run it, and then also look at building the infrastructure in the place as well. So that was way back in 2006 when, when that kicked off, become operational in 2008. The Learning Centre is in near Yarram in Gippsland, but there was earlier a false start with Seymour up in the northeast of Victoria. What happened there? Yeah, it was very early on that um, Seymour was marked as the place for, for Wulgunganalu to be built. We actually purchased a property and it was called Mount Tenon Reef. So it was out the back of Seymour. Um, the community down in Seymour didn't want an Aboriginal facility built in their backyard and were very successful at seeing the program be removed out of there. So um, the old Ron Ron prison was earmarked as a place for, the, for it to move to down in Yarram. So then that grew legs. So Seymour didn't want us. Um, the community were very strategic, successful. 
would you say racist, would you say un- uninformed, whatever it was, they achieved their goal. So the decision was made for the, for the program to be moved. It was the side of the Ron Ron prison. But again, I understand there was maybe some community unrest about it. The Yarram community mightn't have been so sure about having a facility in their region. How did you deal with that? Yeah, well, we'd learn a lot from Seymour. We'd learn a lot about the whole time across Seymour and um, what what had happened and what had taken place. Then when we moved down to the old Ron Ron prison, we started to hear all the same noises. So a lot of the same arguments. People didn't want an Aboriginal facility built in their backyard. So through the Aboriginal Justice Agreement, some key people around the place at the time, really great decision makers from, from the government that were sitting around at the table and the Aboriginal community, is we come up with this idea that we'd win this on the ground. Instead of following the traditional way is listening to people, yes, thank you very much, we understand what you're saying, but we're building this place. Yes, thank you very much, your concerns are this, yes, but we're building the place. We got out and made ourselves available to the whole community brought them along on the journey. Through that community advisor group, we were really able to understand the community concerns and really answer back to the concerns of the community on a personal level and at a real informative level as well and really understand the issues and the problems. And that was the real key to the success. Now, you wouldn't think that we went through that. The community is right behind us. We have great, fantastic links with the community. The work that we do at Wugunganalu, um, the community supports us 100%. We really changed attitudes. Through that whole process, as an Aboriginal man, you sort of, you get to think, you start the process off and you think, geez, there's a lot of racist people around. But really what it was, a lot of people were just ignorant, didn't really understand what we were trying to do, didn't under, understand Aboriginal people and bring them people along on the journey. It's a fantastic place now, Yarram, supports us well. The, the surrounding districts, the surrounding community are, are really good and um, it's a really great place for us to be. Now, Sean, tell us what Wagunganalu does for people, what its role is. It's only men, I think, isn't it? Yes. Who are on community corrections orders. So rather than them stay at home and go out into the community and do their 100 hours of community work, whatever it might be, they can come and do it in an intensive period, I guess, a shorter period, maybe a few months, at a learning place. Yep. So can you just maybe flesh that out for us, how it all works out? Well, I really want to get this message out as well. Well, Gunganoa is a fantastic initiative. Yes, we're born from the Aboriginal Justice Agreement. Yes, we've brought the community along with us and the Aboriginal community as well. Yes, we're built on the old Ron Ron prison, but we're not a prison and we don't represent a prison. What we actually did is we actually bulldozed the prison to the ground. But that's really important for us to to paint this picture now and understand it. When we did that, we also got an Aboriginal architect, Dylan Combermary at the time, and he walked the site with the traditional owners from the area, so elders from the area. So when he walked the site, he got his inspiration from the local Indigenous bird, the Blue Wren. So that's what all our buildings are modelled on, the Blue Wren, and really replicates that as well. And I really love it when people come down and have a look and I get to show them that and, and paint that picture for them. And then also a traditional way of life as well, where we call it the heart of Wugunganalu is a fireplace. The traditional way of life is there's a fireplace in the middle. That's where we do all our business and all our working. 
So we're talking about a traditional way of life back in a traditional setting in what we'd say black Australia is people would walk out of country to come to big ceremonies, corroboree ceremonies, importing meetings, whatever it may be. And we'd always meet around a fire and we'd do our business. So that's where we do our business at Wagunganalu. Then overnight time, meetings might go for three, four days, corroborees, whatever it may be, people would move away to sleep. Yeah? So our accommodation units where our men sleep actually moved away from that area. It's a little bit of a fair distance down a little bit of a hill where the men go and sleep. So that represents that, that cultural way of life. The other key part to it is really open, you know. If people are thinking prison, you think containment, you think this, you think that, well, we're not a prison and it's the whole place is open. No matter where you stand at Wagunganangli, you can see through the place, so you get this culture overlay. One of the other key features to it is right in the centre of Wagunganangli, we've got the fire, but then there's a diamond set of sh- seats that surround the fire. The reason that a diamond's important is in Gunai Kurnai country, in Gunai Kurnai paintings, the symbol of a diamond represents man. So that sits right in the heart of Wagunganangu, a men's facility for Aboriginal men, the cultural overlay, the blue wren, the connection back to culture, the cultural overlay, really makes it a special place for our Aboriginal men to come down and heal. Who's eligible for Wagunganangu is Aboriginal men on community corrections order. You have to be over the age of 18. Our youngest quad obviously is 18 and the oldest fellow we've had there has been 62. And very important for us to have older men come through the program and work as well. We play a key role in that as well, in, in that older man's journey. The commitment is we ask commitment for three months. The maximum time is we say six months but we have had fellows that have stayed longer and that's really because they've been achieving things and, and doing really well within the program. So let me explain that a little bit more. If you work in a cultural setting or a therapeutic approach, if you get three months out of someone working in that, at the end of that three months, the thoughts of change are real. So the men are really contemplating change and connecting to their order and looking to move through that. The six months being the time period where we don't want men to become dependent on us. So we're not an institution. Wagunganangu is part of a journey. Come down, connect to your culture, connect to your identity, and then move on. Sometimes we have men that might have multiple turns at Wagunganangu. We've got a young fellow there at the moment. When I say young, he's 28 now. We first engaged with him about four years ago, and through this journey he's come back and he's stayed a couple of times at Wagunganangu. He's been on a corrections order, a two-years corrections order, for over four years for non-compliance, not being able to complete that order. Lots of reasons for that, I can tell you, is on the 2nd of December, this young man not only completes his his order and moves away from corrections, he also regains his driver's licence and will no longer be in contact with the justice system and free to go and live his life and that through the journey he's been on. Fantastic young man and done a really great job within the program and really working well. But yes, it's been a bit of a challenge for him to get to that point to move on. 
the things that we do at Wagunganalu is that we always say that there's three parts to it. The first one is we have to look at their correctional orders. So every component to the correctional order, you can do at Wagunganalu. That might involve drug and alcohol counselling, might involve anger management, community work, especially now came up to bushfire season. We have to get the place ready to ensure that we're, we're safe around bushfire. So lots of work that we do around that. The second part is what we call programs and education and living skills. So Federation TAFE come in and run programs for us. Sure, and that's a TAFE down in Gippsland, is it? Yep. And they'll come in and they'll run certificate programs for us. White cards, we do traffic management, we do safe food handling, level two first aid, use of power tools. So all these certificates, why? Because then they give the fellas a certificate and get some job ready. The living skill part about it as well is the men of a night time, two men in the place will cook for everyone in the place. And that's a roster that changed. When you say everyone, how many people are there at any one time? Yeah, well, we can have up to 18. So usually a number for us is anywhere from about 12 to 14. We've currently got 15 in the program now. And then the voluntary nature of that sees men come and go a little bit. So that's usually a good number. The living skill component is we want to teach men living skills. So that's that cooking component that I just spoke about. Sometimes it's as simple as showing a man how to turn on a washing machine, hang your clothes on the line, clean your bedroom, making sure that they're looking after themselves, and then the health component in that as well, making sure that men are addressing their health issues as well. But the key to us and the thing that makes us different, because people are probably saying, yeah, that's a, that's a normal place. If you're going to run a place, you'd want them to. Yeah. The thing that makes us different is our cultural component. We teach dance. So we have what we call the Wugunganalu dancers that we teach and we got permission from the local elders down there to be able to dance out of country. We run a program called the, the Track Not Taken. What that program does is that takes fellas on a journey through time. So it goes back to what we call Black Australia. So before settlement of Australia or before invasion of Australia. It really gives Aboriginal men a good understanding of your Aboriginal identity and then looks at the, the, the wrongs of yesterday and addresses that wrongs of yesterday and goes through a journey around that and unlocks some of that anger and puts the blame in the places that it should be around government policy and the wrongs and that. What happened to your nan? What happened to your grandfather? What happened to this? It's not your fault you don't speak your grandfather's tongue. Yeah? So really puts them at ease with that. But then the cultural protocol to that is moving forward is now it's your responsibility to pass on the knowledge. Just to finish off today, Sean, there are congratulations in order. You were mentioned in the Queen's birthday honours list in June this year, which is a great honour. I mean, I'm not sure where the Queen actually sits in terms of Indigenous history of Australia, but anyway, put that bit to one side. You received the prestigious Australian Corrections Medal, an ACM. What did that mean to you to be recognised by, what can I say, the Government of Australia for the last 200 years? Yeah. Fantastic honour. feel really privileged to have that and for my work across the correctional system to be recognised in that. So really feel humble really proud of what we've achieved as well. One thing I also want to add is that's a bit of a personal award as well. Well, Gunga Nalu, also in 2010, we won the, in, the International Corrections and Prisons Association's Award. And that, that was real testimony 
to the staff and to the team that I have at Wulganganalu for us to win that. So then when you put all them things that I talked about together and to be honoured in the Queen's birthday honours, really feel humbled for the for the work that we're that I've done and for the work that we've been able to achieve for our Aboriginal community and for our Aboriginal people. So yeah. Sean, thank you. It is a wonderful journey you've taken us on today in educating us about your life within the law and our criminal justice system and what's being done to try to improve that system in its dealings with Aboriginal men. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. As always, show notes, useful links and a transcript of today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. This week we also have some beautiful photos of Wagunganalu Learning Place, including many of the important cultural touchstones Sean talked about in this episode. We're keen to know what you think, so please reach out via all the usual channels. Let us know the questions you'd like us to ask, topics you'd like explored or ideas for future guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks and subscribe, rate and review the show. It really helps others find out about us. Our show is produced by me, Catherine Green, recorded and mixed by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We are coming to you this week and every week from the iconic County Court of Victoria on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue this discussion here today. 